Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Today's topic, is snow really a problem in older adults? <laughs> well, there is a lot of snow, and we appreciate those who have come here and many who I'm sure are watching uh, online uh, as they can because it's um, being produced live here on the computer. We're delighted to have John Batsis be our speaker today, one of our own faculty members and a clear rising star. And he'll be introduced to us today by Steve Bartels, who runs the Center on Aging here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He's the Herman O. West Distinguished Professor of Geriatrics and also a professor in psychiatry, community and family medicine, and at the Dartmouth Institute. Steve, tell us about John. Thrilled to talk about John. First, uh, how many people have four-wheel drive uh, cars? I was asked. There you go. Now we could do a t-test on this and look at the correlation to four-wheel drive, but I don't think I think I think this is descriptive statistics, and it looks like there's a pretty good correlation. I don't, but I had a really great snowblower which I was using about 15 minutes ago, so I'm really delighted to to be here. So um, first, to introduce uh, John Batsis, um, uh, I think you all know him, but he. Just by way of review, he's an assistant professor of medicine here at the Geisel School. He received his undergraduate degree with great distinction uh, in the physiology from McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and then followed, followed by his medical degree with honors at the University of Dublin at Trinity College uh, in Dublin, Ireland in 2002. He completed his medical surgical internship in Dublin at the St. James Hospital before doing his residency training in internal medicine and a fellowship in geriatrics at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota between 2003 and 2008. And from there, he also holds a certificate in translational science activities from the Mayo Graduate School of Medical Education in Rochester. He joined our faculty in 2002 in internal medicine. And since that time, he's really just been a go-to guy in terms of so much of the geriatric work here. Um, he uh, works with us in the Dartmouth Centers for Health and Aging. He's part of our faculty, a leading faculty member in our Geriatric Education Center. Uh, he leads a wonderful uh, a monthly uh, case conference um, and has been also precepting students uh, in the ambulatory geriatric uh, setting and really is just a terrific leader and wonderful colleague to have at the Center for Health and Aging uh, in partnership with uh, the Department of Medicine. John is taking on a really interesting area, which uh, he'll be talking about, which is you're, I'm sure, aware of that there's been a certain degree of controversy about whether or not it's bad or not to be overweight or obese, and that's important, um, that distinction, as you get older. And you may be aware of, of kind of a controversy in that literature. And I think also, I'm sure you as clinicians wonder, you know, how much should I be pushing this person uh, to be uh, to be losing weight and and uh, and uh, dealing with uh, with uh, weight problem or obesity, this is also complemented by his interest in sarcopenia, uh, and he'll be talking, I think, a little bit about that. And John's interest has taken to re to uh, doing a lot of wonderful work in secondary data analyses, and now has about 40 peer-reviewed peer publications, and continues to collaborate with his colleagues at Mayo in a really wonderful. Uh, and very productive collaboration. So it's really my pleasure to, to introduce uh, John for this really interesting talk. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much, uh, Steve, for that great introduction. Um, and uh, thank you to everybody here who actually uh, braved uh, the snow to 
to show up. I know uh, I was a little worried when trying to get out of my driveway this morning, and uh, even our four-wheel drive had a little challenge getting up the hill. Okay. So, start off some of my objectives of today's talk is to briefly touch upon some of the epidemiology of uh, our aging population, and uh, which is developing obesity, and discuss, discuss its impact on physical function. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the inaccuracy of using body mass index and some caveats that should be uh, borne in mind in uh, thinking about BMI in older adults. And uh, finally, talk about some of the evidence supporting the benefits of weight loss in older adults and importantly highlight the harms of uh, loss of muscle and bone in this population. So. I bring to forth two major public health issues. We often think about these issues, unfortunately, independently. We all know about the obesity epidemic. It makes New York Times headlines almost on a weekly basis. We also know about our aging population. But the, it's the confluence of the two that has yet to be really examined. And what I hope to do in the next 40 to 45 minutes is give you some of the data that I've worked on and some other data that uh, prove that this indeed is a problem uh, and that we should be doing something about it. Uh, what, I've, what I've done over the last couple of years, is, as Steve mentioned, is worked on a number of secondary data sets to understand some of this phenomenology and, and I'll present you some of the results that I've done thus far. So, I usually introduce most of my older adult talks with this uh, tsunami, as I call it, uh, and it's the geriatric tsunami. Um, and the reason I say that is based on recent census data this, uh, that our population is aging. And you can see the recent census data suggest that about 40 million adults are classified as being geriatric, so old over the age of 65. But what is frightening are the trends. So the projections in the next 30 to 40 years is that there's going to be about a doubling of the older adult population. So by the year 2060, over 90 million US adults will be over the age of 65. Put it in another way, the proportion currently of older adults in our population is about 13%. And this is going to be going up to about 22%. So this is not insignificant. And it's going to impact not only us in geriatrics, but every medical specialty itself. What is probably the most frightening of the statistics in terms of census data and epidemi uh, epidemiological trends in an older adult population is the proportion of old, old. So these are the older adults over the age of 85. Currently, about 1.8%. Uh, based on cen last, uh, census data in 2010, showed th that the, there was 1.8% of the population was over the age of 85. This, this proportion is about, will almost more than double by the year 2015, 2060 to about 4.5%. So you say, why? So why is this happening? Well, life expectancy due to improvements in medical advances, pharmacotherapy, uh, general well, uh, well-being and health has led to improvements in life expectancy. So if you look at a 65-year-old, if you live to the age of 65, at, in the year 1950, a female would live on average about 15 years, a male would live an average of 12 to 13 years uh, past that. 
In the year 2010, these estimates suggest an improvement in life expectancy to the age of 86 and 83, respectively, in either uh, sex. And this is important because two or three generations ago, patients had normal function, they had a smaller period of disability, and then they died. In our current state, and this is going to actually worsen over the course of the next uh, few decades, patients have a normal level of function, they have a longer period of disability before they die. And when I when I talk about disability, just to kind of digress uh, briefly, I'm talking about, I'm in, using the words disability, function, and ADLs, activities of daily living, interchangeably. Um, and I'm using that just deliberately just for sake of, uh, of uh, s simplicity in this talk. So basic activities of daily living are those activities that we all do every single morning that we wake up. We get out of bed, we walk into the shower, we bathe, we toilet, we dress, we feed. Uh, and we walk. Instrumental are everything that uh, we all do on our day off. Uh, our shopping, housekeeping, preparing meals, taking meds, doing our finances. And why is this important? This is a study using longitudinal, from the longitudinal study of aging, uh, NIH study, uh, performed a number of years ago. But I think it highlights the point that if you live long enough, you will develop disability. And the first disability that kicks in is that of a mobility impairment. And the last, this, uh, the last ADL that uh, patients end up losing is usually feeding. But if you live to about 110 years, years old, you'll lose pretty much every single ADL. So patients are living longer. Their risk of disability is actually increasing. And as one ages, the number of comorbid conditions actually increases considerably. And this is data from a, a, a Medicare study uh, published last year that, that demonstrate there is an increasing number of comorbidities with an aging population. The golden years are not as golden as a, a number of my patients end up saying, because they end up developing a number of comorbidities. And we all see this, I'm sure, in your own practices. So, that's kind of the, some of the epidemiological trends on disability and aging that I wanted to share with you. Independently, we've all seen these maps. These are behavioral risk factor surveillance maps, uh, a CDC-performed survey that looks at population trends of, ob of obesity and other disorders. Uh, this is an older map from 1985, which really demonstrated in 1985 that the prevalence of obesity in the United States ranged between 10 and 15%. And obesity was classified as a body mass index of over 30. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. As time passes, the year 2000, you can see there's a little bit more uh, beige color here. The uh, prevalence of obesity ranges in and around the 20 to 25% range. And most recent data suggests that the prevalence of obesity in the United States population, based on this survey, and it's parallel in using uh, NHANES data as well. It ranges at around 33 to 37%. So I present data here on the entire US popu adult population, but these trends actually parallel almost to the T in an older adult population. So it's not n only a disease of a younger population. This is actually these epidemiological trends of the obesity epidemic, really, occur even in an older adult population. 
So as I'll do throughout the talk, I just want to emphasize some key points. Our population is aging, and the duration of disability will be extended. Obesity measured by body mass index in older adults exceeds 35%. So we all use body mass index in clinical practice to assess for obesity. And we know that a body mass index, body mass index is calculated as weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared. And this was coined by the NHLBI uh, many, many years ago. Classifications are underweight is a BMI of under 18 and a half, normal BMI 18 and a half to 25, 25 to 30 is overweight, and over 30 is this classification of obesity. For the purposes of the talk, I just want you all, I'm sure you all know these classifications, but I just wanted to reiterate that. But I'm going to prove to you that BMI is not the be all and end all for classifying obesity in an older adult population. And why is this? Again, focusing on the older adult population, there are changes in height with age. We lose vertebral height, patients become more kyphotic. So one's height drops. If the height drops, that ratio ends up increasing. Also, there are a number of changes in body composition with age. There actually is an increase in fat mass and a loss of fat-free mass. Uh, or lean mass, and I'll, I'll get to that uh, shortly. But overall weight changes demonstrate uh, that there are about 4 to 6% uh, loss of weight as one ages. So if you take a 65-year-old, at the age of 75, they'll, their weight will likely be a little lower than what it was at the age of 65. And again, this will end up affecting the BMI ratio. So. Using data from the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging, they, these investigators actually plotted the mean BMI with time. Uh, and they adjusted for year here. So it's important because we know that obesity trends have, uh, have increased over, over time. But really, the mean BMI has actually shifted, shifts to the right in an older adult population. So the mean BMI in a younger population is not the same as the, as the mean BMI in an older population. Um, I was part of a, a team that wanted to look at, well, how good is BMI in an older adult population to assess for adiposity? So we had used NHANES 3 data. So this is data from 1998 to, uh, 1988 to 1994. And they, this data set actually assessed body composition, fat mass, using biological impedance analysis. And we looked at this, the uh, diagnostic performance of BMI. What we found was sensitivity, actually, of BMI to assess adiposity in older adults is similar in males and females, but it drops with age. And that BMI actually would miss about 50% of subjects that would otherwise be classified as having obesity based on body composition. So this, this is one of the first of many studies that have been published since that really show that BMI in an older adult population is not, it's not the greatest uh, surrogate for, for adiposity. So that led us to kind of think about things a little differently. Well, if we know that the gold standard for measuring adiposity is percent body fat, well, what about those patients with a normal BMI? In clinical practice, we often say, well, your BMI is normal, 
you're fine. But these patients, there are a subset of patients actually who have a normal BMI but high body fat, central, either central adiposity or otherwise. And they actually have a significant number of cardiometabolic uh, abnormalities. This normal weight obesity phenomenon, uh, as I, I like to call it. So they have higher levels of cardiometabolic risk factors, diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, higher levels of um, pro-inflammatory uh, markers. And a study that, that I published last year actually demonstrated sex-specific differences in long-term mortality, again, using NHANES data that, that demonstrated that females actually had sh higher short-term mortality versus males who had long, uh, higher long-term mortality. And we hypothesized part of this, these changes and these differences in, in sex-specific uh, uh, mortality models were likely uh, due to an interplay with muscle mass. And, and I'll get to that shortly. Um, using a systematic review, uh, myself and some, some others ended up uh, determining the impact of this normal weight obesity phenomenon in coronary artery disease patients. And what we found that patients with a high waist hip ratio in, but had a normal BMI had almost a threefold higher risk of death. So this is not insignificant. So these are patients, again, in your clinic that you're actually identifying as being normal, having a normal BMI, but they're actually at a higher uh, long-term long risk. And this, this study actually had over 16,000 patients. So uh, we were adequately uh, powered to uh, look at some of these effects. Um, I decided to take this kind of one step further, think, kind of putting my geriatrics hat on and thinking about function, because that's really what we often do in, uh, on a daily basis in our own practice. So we looked at this normal weight obesity phenomenon in both males and females and saw, and, and saw whether or not there was a, a, any association with physical function. And what we found actually that in males there, were, there was no association in, with regard to function, but in females there was quite a, a strong uh, odds ratio of 1.9 which again, our hypothesis was that this was likely due to an interplay between fat and muscle. Uh, longitudinally, uh, myself and some others in the center actually were looking at data from the osteoarthritis initiative. So this is a, a cohort of patients who are at risk for developing arthritis. And we looked at patients who had a normal BMI but central uh, obesity based on waist circumference. And we looked at three distal outcomes at 72 months. A physical component scale of the SF12, the short form 12 quality of life measure. Uh, late life disability and function index, which is a marker of disability. And the physical uh, activity scale for the elderly uh, metric as well. And what we found in these beige bars here that as compared to um, a normal BMI, normal, uh, normal waist circumference that patients with normal BMI with central adiposity actually have had markedly uh, different and a lot larger drops in the physical component scale of the uh, SF12, higher disability, uh, long-term disability uh, scores, and worsened physical activity. So really this study kind of put into, in my mind, into the the fact that these patients 
are at higher risk, not only of adverse metabolic outcomes, but of adverse functional outcomes as well. So I come back. Why should we use BMI in clinical practice in older adults? Uh, well, it's easy, and we're, we're using it. It's hard to change existing paradigms, and it's cheap. I think that's the other big, big issue. So it's a balance between precision of ident identifying adiposity using more sophisticated measures, CT, MRI, bioelectrical impedance, and or DEXA, versus simple anthropometric measures like waist circumference, waist hip ratio, or BMI. But I want to, the take home point here is that BMI does have poor sensitivity. It's really a crude index for adiposity. Uh, I didn't talk about this, but there are there likely exist ethnic-specific values in different subgroups. Uh, we know that cutoffs for BMI uh, have impact for public health policy. And as I mentioned, fat measuring fat mass is not practical, and I can't see uh, it being reimbursed anytime soon. So some key points. BMI is not the best surrogate for obesity in older adults as it will miss patients who otherwise may be obese. In central obesity and those with normal BMI may predict metabolic abnormalities and disability in older adults. So we all know when we think about obesity, we think about long-term heart outcomes like, like mortality. And for all intents and purposes in a younger population, a younger adult population, this is data from uh, uh, Catherine Flegel and her group at the CDC that combined three waves of NHANES data. And uh, I believe it was over uh, 15,000, uh, sorry, uh, 45,000 total patients with distal outcomes. What this, what is known and I think is well accepted, it, irrespective of the age category, is that low BMI, BMI of under 18.5, is associated with higher risk mortality distally. So I think that is very well accepted. What is not, what is a little bit less, uh, or more, a bit more confusing, is this U-shaped curve that that you see on the left in a younger population. So that for those that can't see, that's between the ages of 25 and 60. It's a U-shaped curve. So the the bottom, the, the lowest risk of mortality is actually those in the normal BMI range, but that U-shaped curve actually flattens as one ages. So we know that in an older adult population, BMI of over 35 is definitively associated with a higher risk of mortality. Obese, class one obesity, BMI of 30 to 35, probably. But it really, the, 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 the natter BMI, so the, the minimal mortality risk that occurs in uh, when you look at BMI as, as a primary predictor of mortality is actually in the overweight category. This is one of many, many studies. Uh, and I use the word many, many studies because it seems as though that these studies just keep on coming out in, again, specifically in older adults. And I'm emphasizing that point. That looked at mortality risk in both males and females and that the minimum mortality risk was a BMI of 26.6 in males, 26.3 in females. So what, what I want to kind of share with you here is what if in folks that have metabolic abnormalities, I think it's helpful to treat them. 
and to advise general uh, well-being in, in, these, in this population. But be cautious of aggressive weight loss in, the, in this population when you look at a minimum mortality risk in a BMI of 26. So there is controversy in the literature, though, and particularly in those with a BMI of over 30. There are a number of studies that have come out, particularly in the heart failure literature, that show and demonstrate that a BMI is actually protective from a mortality standpoint. This obesity paradox. We think about obesity, worsen distal outcomes, but in, this, in that specific population, actually, obesity seems to be protective. Um, so we wanted to explore this because a lot of the many studies actually incorporate in their study sample patients with significant comorbidity. And these are the patients that actually can confound the relationship between obesity and mortality. So um, this actually got published just two days ago, believe it or not. But the we used NHANES data, linked it up to a mortality data set. And we, we did was we stratified both BMI and body fat based on tertile. And we found that those with a high BMI or, and a high body fat uh, percent based on the uh, tertile distribution actually had a lower risk of death. We had excluded, though, patients with heart failure, coronary artery disease, cancer patients, and uh, chronic renal insufficiency patients. So this is really a healthy population. Our, study, our, our, our conclusions in the, in the study were that in healthy older adults, BMI, this, this data actually proved that BMI actually and body fat may indeed be a little bit protective in this, in this population. But again, I just present this data because I just want, want you to, to be aware of this paradox. And in another study that, we, that, I, that I performed a couple of years back, this was looking at a subset of patients who had uh, in Olmsted County, this is when I was a, a fellow, we looked at all uh, hip fracture patients in Olmsted County between the years uh, 88 and 2002. Um, my initial hypothesis actually was that obesity was, would, be, uh, would lead to an increased risk of uh, cardiac events and cardiac death. What we found actually was, was completely the opposite. A, a low BMI was actually associated with a higher risk of uh, cardiovascular events and cardio, cardiac death. <clears throat> obesity actually, there was a null effect. You can see the odds ratio uh, was 1.12. Uh, so again, in certain populations, obesity may be protective. Uh, the jury, I think, is st still out overall. So back to BMI, a question that often is posed to me, well, should we really be using it in clinical practice? I think it's here to stay, but I think what we need to be aware of are some of the other, uh, some of the, the, the other, other data that's, that's available with regard to disability and function. Um, this is a systematic review that looked at uh, a number of studies, as you can see here, uh, that looked at the relationship between body mass index and a functional decline, so risk of dis uh, long-term disability. And it, it, there's no doubt that a BMI of over 30 is, is associated with worsened disability downstream uh, with a pooled risk ratio of 1.6. <clears throat> um, when we looked at just body fat independent of BMI, we actually found that there were sex-specific differences, both significant in terms of patients with an elevated body fat, tertile, so stratified the data based on low, middle, and high body fat. Those with high body fat 
actually was associated with worsened disability downstream. But how about the duration of obesity? Well, Doc, I've been obese all my life. Well, we know that data from the Health, Aging, and Body Composition Study actually suggested and demonstrated that the risk of disability is, in, is, is related to the duration of obesity. So the longer you are obese, if you see over two-fold risk of disability in those who are overweight or obese at the ages of 25, 50, and 79. So the longer you're obese, I think the take-home message from this slide, the longer you're obese, the higher the risk of disability in, in older adult. And how about weight change um, and risk of institutionalization? Large degrees of weight loss, large degrees of weight gain in older adulthood is problematic. So again, smaller degrees of weight loss and weight change are helpful, but larger degrees, I would caution you in this population. This is only but one study, but it's amazing that you know there, there aren't that many studies actually available that look at longitudinal relationships between uh, weight change and obesity and risk of nursing home placement, which is, of course, in, in, in our geriatric practice, that's one of the things that we, we try to avoid in our patients. Um, I put this study up here because it was just published in the Annals of Internal Medicine uh, in, in December of this past year. Uh, that looked at this uh, phenomenon called metabolically healthy obese uh, patients. And they, they, these authors looked at the, the risk of these, this subgroup of patients and risk of death as compared to metabolically healthy normal BMI patients. Um, they found that this subgroup had a 24% higher risk of death than those uh, who are metabolically healthy normal weight patients. I was a little skeptical when I saw this. And knowing the literature, my, my gestalt really was that there is a subgroup of, of patients with obesity that are, are actually healthy. And when you look at the, the analytics of this, uh, of this paper, they did not adjust for age. They did not adjust for smoking status. They did not adjust for physical activity. And they didn't adjust for a number of comorbid conditions, which confound the relationship. The other important point of this paper here is that they defined metabolically healthy as patients having two or less components of the metabolic syndrome. In my mind, if you have two out of the five criteria, yes, you don't have metabolic syndrome, but I wouldn't consider that metabolically healthy. So I know this made a lot of press. I just wanted to let you folks know about that. So low BMI or a BMI of over 35 is clearly detrimental from a medical functional status and mortality standpoint. And the longer the degree of obesity, the worse the outcomes. So to treat or not to treat. And some of the other controversies that often come up are, well, older adults have a limited lifespan, even when they're not obese. And patients are who are prone to complications of obesity have already died, the Darwinian effect leaving those more resistant to the effects of obesity. And excess fat may actually have a lesser effect on mortality in older adults. So there are only a handful of randomized controlled trials in the literature that look at the different interventions in older adults. And I emphasize that, in older adults. 
Um, and I'll, I'll present data from, uh, from a few of them. This is the ADAPT trial, uh, which looked at patients with osteoarthritis over the age of 60. And they grouped these patients in an exercise program uh, in, in, a, in a given facility. And they actually compounded this with, uh, in, in another group with uh, weekly diet sessions. Their primary outcomes were stair climb and six-minute walk test. The, probably the latter is probably more familiar with, uh, uh, to the audience. And it found that exercise will lead to improvements in function from a six-minute walk test. But, the, but adding, uh, sorry, and adding diet to that will actually augment the, the distance one can walk in the six-minute walk test. The same authors performed a, uh, a subsequent trial, the IDEA trial. It was an 18-month randomized controlled trial. The entry uh, age was the age of 55, so a little younger, but the mean age was in uh, approximately 67 years of, years of age. These were uh, patients with BMI of between 27 and 41. They engaged in intensive weight loss, so their goal was about 10% of, uh, of, of their baseline weight that they would have to lose. They gave them some meals. There was a deficit of uh, between 800 to 1,000 kilocalories per day. And they engaged them in three days per week of an exercise intervention. Um, the su in summary, for this trial, they found out that diet and exercise really had better functional improvements in these measures than exercise or diet alone. Uh, Rajeski and his colleagues in North Carolina looked at, looked at a weight loss intervention in those with cardiovascular disease or, and those who actually had some self-reported limitations. This was quite an intense trial. There were 48 group and individual sessions of over 150 minutes per week of physical activity, so not insignificant time commitment. Uh, there was also a weight loss group and a combined group as well. And their primary outcome was a 400-meter walk test. What I, what I bring to your attention here is that the weight loss and physical activity group and the physical activity only group both had reductions in the time to complete this test at six months. But having weight loss, augmenting, uh, sorry, augmenting physical activity with weight loss actually leads to prolonged maintenance of one's function. And I think that's an important take-home point, that coupling weight loss with physical activity leads to prolongation of the improvements that you see in physical function. So this is my favorite randomized controlled trial of all. Uh, Dennis Villarreal and his group in New Mexico published this in New England about uh, just about two years ago. They did a 52-week randomized controlled trial in four different groups, a control group, a diet only, exercise only, and a diet with exercise. The diet group actually consisted of an energy deficit between 570 kilocals, weekly dietitian visit, and the goal was to lose 10% of their baseline weight at six months and maintain that for a year. The exercise program was three times a week led by a physical therapist and it involved not only aerobic activity, but also resistance, flexibility, and balance training. So they, their results paralleled those that I just showed you, where that diet, and, diet alone and diet and exercise actually led to weight loss. So we know that. 
we know that you need diet to lose weight. But what I think was very important, and granted, the study sample was quite small in each of these groups, but it's, this is, his study was the first of this kind that actually demonstrated that when you, when you lose weight, you not only lose fat mass, but you also lose lean mass or fat-free mass. And that is what's important. Exercise actually leads to improvements in lean mass, but when you couple diet and exercise together, it actually blunts the loss of lean mass that one loses, particularly in older adults who don't have that reserve. Further, they actually looked at changes in bone mineral density and that the diet and exercise group blunts any loss in bone mineral density. And again, that these two issues of fat-free mass and bone density are often overlooked in when we counsel patients for weight loss. And I think this study really hammered this point home that when you counsel patients to lose weight, particularly older adults, you need to think about muscle and bone. So when we think about weight loss, we, all, we not only should be thinking about losing a little bit of fat, but we also need to think about the loss in bone and muscle. And really, I believe that the goal of any weight loss intervention in an older adult should be to improve physical function, quality of life, and to prevent institutionalization. So I bring up the concept of sarcopenia, which initially was coined in 1988, um, that by a Greek word, of course, but that, uh, that it meant, means loss of flesh. Well, the, the terminology has evolved, as, as I'll describe to you. But this is, initially was coined as a loss of muscle mass with age. So in early life, one, one's muscle mass increases. There's growth and development. You reach a peak muscle mass, usually in your 20s. In adult life, you end up maintaining that peak, maybe a little de decrease. But in older life, so when you transition into the older adult years, the goal really is to minimize the loss of muscle. Patients will lose muscle as they age. And particularly, this is somewhat accelerated in the geriatric age group. So the goal is really to minimize this loss. And why is this important? Because there is a threshold. Everyone has an individual threshold that once the muscle mass and muscle strength crosses that threshold, disability will kick in. And that's what we want to prevent. So the goal really is to change the environment and to engage oneself to shift the curve upwards like that or to the right to prevent you from crossing that threshold. So when Villarreal really coined this issue of loss of lean mass and development of sarcopenia in patients in the diet only group, I, I got, we got thinking here as a group and thought about, well, we know that sarcopenia occurs with aging. We know that there's a public health epidemic of really the, obese, the older obese patient. What about the confluence of the two? The, the fat frail patient that we sometimes see in, in clinical practice. And what initially I, I wanted to think about was, well, how do we go about defining this? So I, I performed a systematic review um, and we identified eight different definitions of this sarcopenic obesity phenomenon. And we found that the definitions are all over the place. 
uh, that the prevalence rates in males on the left, females on the right, actually range between 18 and 20-fold, depending on the definition. So unfortunately, from, from a clinical standpoint, we're not quite prime time to identify this in clinical practice. But what we do know, those with who have sarcopenia but are obese actually have worsened function than those than otherwise. So this combination of the two is a bad, is a lose-lose combination. Um, this is a, a study we looked at the risk of death in those with sarcopenia and sarcopenic obesity. Uh, and we found that sarcopenia with and without obesity actually, both in males and females, had a higher risk of death. Uh, and our mean follow-up time was about 14 years. So uh, this is in an older adult population using NHANES 3 data. But the definition of, of sarcopenia really has evolved over time. And particularly, uh, Luigi Ferrucci's group at the NIA has really transformed our thinking about muscle. To think, to try to, uh, to get away from muscle mass to muscle function and muscle strength. And he used data from uh, the Incante study. So it's a population-based study in Italy, actually, that looked at the combination of those who had obesity so a BMI of over 30, but actually had low strength uh, using a, um, a dynamometer, which is to measure grip strength. And they found that the one's function, so one's ability to walk, actually was markedly reduced if you had a combination of low muscle strength and obesity. So that, again, that's a lose-lose combination. Uh, this uh, systematic review and meta-analysis actually looked at the at muscle mass and muscle strength uh, over time and risk of disability. And the, the panel on the left really shows muscle mass. And you can see that the pooled odds ratio is just barely insignificant. Um, is it, and maybe a selection of, of studies, but we know that the impact of muscle on function, muscle mass on function, is likely still there, it's like, but it's not as important as the panel on the right that you'll see muscle strength and risk of uh, disability, where the pooled odds ratio in that, uh, in that review demonstrated that an 86% higher risk. So muscle strength definitely is the key here when we think about function, and muscle mass less so. So some key points. Combination of diet and exercise improves physical function. Weight loss is likely indicated in obese older adults with physical function as the primary goal. And preservation of muscle quality is imperative. Are there guidelines to guide clinicians? Uh, in short, no. But this is an older article uh, that provided more some research guide guidelines and epidemiological guidelines in how to uh, issues to think about in obesity in older adults. Uh, the Obesity Society and American College of Cardiology and AHA just published obesity guidelines uh, just a few months ago, uh, uh, published by Mike Jensen in, uh, from Mayo Clinic. And in talking to Dr. Jensen at the at last obesity meeting, I asked him, why wasn't ob ob the obese older adult included in these guidelines? Because it wasn't. 
So the and his his response to that was really it it really is uh, it's unclear the best modality because we don't have that that the data is not there. We only have a limited number of randomized trials. Uh, I couldn't talk about obesity in the older adult without talking about the Medicare obesity benefit. Uh, for those of you, of you who are not familiar, uh, as of, uh, I, think, I think it was March of 2012, they uh, are now paying for intensive behavioral therapy up to 22 sessions per year for 15 minutes of face-to-face -face focused discussions. The outcome of Medicare's outcome is weight loss, not function. So it's important that uh, I have a little bit of a disagreement on, on that as the primary outcome. But it's to be performed in a primary care setting by either an MD, an associate provider, a, a nutritionist, or a clinical nurse specialist. Nutritional interventions need to be multidisciplinary. There needs to be an on-the-ground dietitian for you to be successful. And one of the reasons that you had the Medicare obesity benefit have 22 sessions is we know frequency of contact actually leads to improved success downstream. Um, we need to think about sarcopenia, and hence total protein intake needs to be augmented. Uh, the, our current, the current recommended daily allowance of uh, protein intake is probably insufficient in this population. And we need to think about bone. Uh, vitamin D can not only uh, prevent or mitigate any uh, uh, bone health issues, but it also may be favorable from uh, improvement in muscle quality, muscle mass. All exercise interventions should be focused, though, on muscle quality, muscle strength, and not necessarily muscle mass. And resistance training is really the key to function. Engaging a physical therapist who is trained or an exercise physiologist who is trained is really key to engaging patients in, uh, in losing, in improving their physical fitness. Uh, just very briefly, uh, the, there are three FDA-approved medications for long-term use uh, in obesity, Xenical or Orlistat, uh, Belvic, and uh, Fenteramine and Torpiramate. Xenical uh, impairs uh, fat within your digestive tract. In older adults, can you use it? Yes. Does it have side effects? Absolutely. It leads to a lot of oily stools, and in patients, in older adults who may be at higher risk of fecal incontinence, it may not be the, the, the optimal uh, medication to use. But it, it can be used in, short, in a short term. Um, Lorcarserin and Casemia are two of the newer medications. Uh, uh, Lorcarserin is a 5-HT2A uh, uh, a blocker. And these two medications are, are indicated in the younger population. I, the, the data on older in, in an older age group is, is lacking. What we do know is that there are cognitive side effects with both of these medications. And in, particularly in older adults who may have undiagnosed cognitive impairment, I'd be a little bit uh, hesitant until further uh, trial data is uh, available. Um, while not FDA-approved, endoscopic devices are likely going to reach the, the market shortly. Uh, they're available in Europe, Canada, Australia. They usually give a jump start to weight loss. Uh, and this may be a, p a potentially effective uh, modality in older adults. I'm asked this question all the time. Should we be performing bariatric surgery in older adults? Um, I do consult uh, for the surgeons uh, 
on their, some of their older adults. And really, we should not be preventing patients who, just because of age to engage in surgery. But they do need a, a, a comprehensive geriatric assessment prior to engagement in surgery. I, I picked up a number of patients with cognitive impairment, uh, patients who are maybe at risk for delirium in the hospital and, and adverse uh, outcomes. And their social situation is extremely important and uh, often needs to be further explored. Prior data really showed that mortality in older beneficiaries was higher. This is older data. This was data performed at non-bariatric surgery centers of excellence and in an era where open procedures were the norm, where now we're proceeding more towards laparoscopic procedures. The complication rate from an open procedure, a bariatric open procedure, is the same as the complications of any abdominal surgery in an older adult. There's data on that. Metabolically, uh, this is some uh, data published in abstract form that looking at uh, the Mayo Clinic registry where we looked at uh, cardiovascular risk factors and really there was uh, a drop in all cardiac risk factors in uh, patients over the age of 65. So there's really the metabolic uh, benefits are very similar in an older adult population. So some of the unanswered questions, what's the best therapeutic approach for losing fat and retaining and gaining muscle function to prevent functional decline and disability? We know it's a three-pronged approach. You need a dietary program, you need behavioral modification, and you need physical activity. The degree of weight loss is unclear to achieve important clinical outcomes of physical function, quality of life, and maintenance of muscle and bone. So in conclusion, public health crisis of obesity in an aging population will only worsen. BMI can still be considered as a surrogate for obesity in older adults, but with caution. Uh, the use of waist-hip ratio or waist circumference can be helpful in risk stratification. And it's important to recognize the importance of sarcopenia and weight loss interventions. And really, physical function should be considered the primary outcome of an obesity management program in older adults. So I'm hoping that I've shared with you some of my experience in the convergence of these two public health issues. And I just want to briefly acknowledge uh, all my collaborators, and in particular, uh, Steve Bartels, who's been an unbelievable mentor uh, to me in, uh, uh, since I've been here at Dartmouth. And, uh, and lastly, and importantly, my, my family, uh, who is my wife's in the audience. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I remember an interesting study in Octogenarians they lost their muscles fast, and I think even faster than younger adults might lose it. Is, is that a phenomenon that would happen? Uh, you know, and we, we actually observe that in, in, in our clinical practice where patients engage in a physical activity program, and they feel great afterwards. And then the minute they fall off the wagon, they're in trouble again. And again, it's just the biological mechanism which ends up leading. You need to maintain that muscle mass uh, through resistance training. Um, so really want to advocate not only to our obese patients who may be at risk for sarcopenia, but even our older adults, get those TheraBands out, get those milk jugs, get those uh, uh, soup cans, 
You don't need to go buy $20 weights at, at Walmart, for instance. John, that was a really nice review, and it sort of reminds us about you know, applying data to older populations. But maybe more of a philosophical question, but getting back to your first slide about the fact that we're going to have this uh, large duration of disability in the larger population. Shouldn't the study approach in the elderly, even somewhat in the, in the younger people, be to first have a session defining what they mean by health, and then see what interventions do to help them achieve what they define as health? Because it strikes me that you know, a lot of these studies are done on basically self-selected populations right. who want to even participate in this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's a great question, question uh, or comment, Rich, is the fact that everybody Every patient, every older adult has a different degree of what's important to them. And what is it function? Is it to live longer? Is it to walk around the block? Is it to get to the toilet? It, you know, it really, and it, this is where the individualized approach really needs to be uh, taken into account when, you, when you're thinking about what you're going to counsel the patients. Yeah. Uh, just one comment on that um, study of the metabolically healthy obese patients. Um, if you look at NPAIN's data, every additional component of the metabolic syndrome worsens your survival. And so the 25% of people who don't have any do substantially better than any of the other groups and substantially better than the 25% that end up in metabolic syndrome. Uh, that's the comment. The question is, um, why do we use impediment uh, devices? They're very They are. Um, in older adults in particular, there are a number of limitations. Um, because bioelectrical impedance actually has, uh, takes into account body water in, in, in terms of whole body water, it can tend to overestimate adiposity in underweight patients and tends to over, overestimate in, under, in underweight patients and underestimate in overweight patients. Great talk, John. Thank you. Um, I, I wish you would just comment a bit on the uh, undertreatment of depression yep. um, and how that impacts on Absolutely, and you know the, the studies. Some of the some of the studies of depression and, and obesity have demonstrated some conflicting results. Mm -hmm. But uh, I truly believe I think that you need to be able to assess as part of your assessment should be to assess uh, mental health issues. Because if, if someone's not engaged, you lose that behavioral activation and behavioral engage the patient engagement. So you're 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 lost. You can do you can have the un unbelievable intervention <clears throat> that'll work, but if they're not ready to, if they're pre-contemplative or they're they're depressed, you're not going to engage them in, in that. Uh, is there any hypothesis what the mechanism could be that the fat in that particular abdominal location is so bad for you? G great question. And uh, my, the hypothesis is really pro-inflammatory cytokines, IL-1, IL-6, CRP, that are elevated in central adiposity, which actually, these cytokines are actually also uh, mediate the frailty syndrome and, dis and disability as well. So there are a number of interlocking mechanisms which haven't been fully uh, explored. Martha. Just a quick follow-up with the depression question. Yeah. Most of the treatments for depression, at least if I'm broad, uh, weight, weight gain. Yep. Um, but, yeah, Tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, quick comment and a question. The finding about obesity being protective is also true in dialysis patients. So, there's very robust data showing the fatter you are as a dialysis patient, the longer you live, um, which is even over BMI of 40, which is interesting. 
But the question is, what about waist-hip ratio? I mean, there's so much data showing it's better than BMI for cardiovascular risk, and it's not a complicated measurement. Nope. It's not high-tech. And it's, and it's interesting because the obesity statement, the, the consensus statement that was just published, actually mentioned that BMI should be the primary uh, anthropometric measurement to be used, but waist circumference and waist hip ratio should be uh, considered as adjuncts, uh, which in an older adult population and even in a general population, you're absolutely right. They actually have better predictive validity in terms of their long-term cardiovascular risk and cardiovascular events. Um, a lot of it has to do with the just you know it's the uh, central central adiposity, which leads to these uh, <coughs> these outcomes. Very nice talk. Motivate me to exercise more. <laughs> 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 so I like to add the medication because FDA approved weight loss medication very limited, but once in geriatric we had diabetes, so we have lots of medication now to help people lose weight, mm -hmm. diabetic patients lose weight if they can't afford. I mean the DPP4 inhibitor. Right better than the